Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Today we're talking about being stuck in our marriages, and so it is uh, a, an appropriate time for us to evaluate uh, where we're at and uh, whether or not we put a facade on for the people all around us. Uh, but uh, before we get into being stuck in our marriages and in honor of our turtle-loving church, and to prove to and whoever might doubt our love for turtles because of a sad misunderstanding of the postcard. I, I just wanted to point out that I, I am actually wearing turtle socks in honor of all turtles everywhere. Um, so does it, do we have people here that wear cool socks? Do we have anybody that wears cool socks here? All right, what do you wear? Are you, do you have any cool socks on now? No. But do you have? You do? All right, well then, you're gonna, get, you're gonna get a pair of turtle socks as well. There you go, because you deserve turtle socks. I also, have, uh, I also have a man's pair of turtle socks if we have someone else that wears excellent. All right, there we go, heads up. All right, good snatch. All right, well, welcome to our teaching series called Stuck. Last week we saw that uh, many people are stuck. Some know it, some don't know it. And we make Jesus your singular focus and we let him jostle you free from whatever you're stuck. And that's the gist and the overall theme of the whole of the series, which is going to go till Christmas. But today we are talking about marriages that are stuck. I realize that people have all sorts of different situations that uh, you are coming from today. Some of you are married and you're glad you're married. Some of you aren't so sure you're glad, and I understand that. And uh, some of you are married and are certain you wish you weren't married, and so there's always that we have to deal with as well. Some of you are actually nearing divorce and others are already divorced. Some of you are single and uh, you want to stay that way. And others of you are single and you would very, very much like to get married. So I've got like, you know, 30, 35 minutes. I can't address every situation, of course, and I have to sometimes paint with a bit of a broad brush at times. But I do think that most everyone here will be able to get something out of the topic today, no matter where you are at. And uh, we do know that uh, we take God's word, we apply it to our lives, and we have seen it over time and time again that uh, he does exceedingly more than we ever hope or imagine. So we start off by asking, are you stuck 
in your marriage. And now I'm, now not, I'm not asking if you're stuck as in I really want to get out, but I don't know how to get out. That's not what we're talking about when we say stuck. This is more like the marriage is stuck, all right? That's kind of what, what we're focusing on here. And you might even say, well, you know, the relationship's okay. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's fine. Is that what you want? Is that what you're comfortable with? Is that what you're happy with, that it's okay? Well, maybe it's not moving in the direction that is best for you or for your spouse, that's what we mean by getting these marriages unstuck. And there are lots of ways that a marriage gets stuck. You might have the nagging marriage. So if you regularly want to say, for the love of God, would you shut up? If you, if you, have, you don't have to say it, but if you have the thought of wanting to say it, you might actually be in a nagging marriage. And your marriage might be stuck. You could have the monotony Marriage, this is, uh, you know, kind of the same old, same old. It's a little ho and a little hum and a little, you know, yawn here and there. It's a Netflix and binge kind of a marriage. Not Netflix and chill, totally different thing. I'm talking about the Netflix and, and binge. It's like, uh, not much happening here. You got the celibate marriage. There's little to no spark. Intimacy is lackluster infrequent, surrounded by insecurities or discomfort. You've got the polyamorous marriage, this, and I'm not talking here, by the way, about like open marriages or, or like actual polygamy or anything like that. I mean, which, by the way, if that is you, then you are stuck and we should talk, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is the emotional infidelity. Are you now finding that you're, you're bringing another person emotionally into your marriage? Are you flirting with an emotional affair? There's the complaint-free marriage. And as soon as I say it, some of you are like, yes, that's what I want. I want the complaint-free marriage. Except, of course, if you're in a marriage where there are frustrations and there are problems and no one is talking about it, that means that one or both of you are secretly unhappy. You're never going to have a marriage that's going to be perfect. Well, that means there's got to be conversation, not complaint-free. There's the roommate marriage. So you got your individual lives. You're kind of going your separate ways. Maybe there's an occasional friends with benefits moment or two. But mostly it's two me's and no we's. You got the two separate people, but you don't have the we that makes it a marriage. So your marriage might be stuck. You've got the unmet marriage. So if you've got this feeling that your physical or your emotional or your social needs are going unmet, then your marriage might be stuck. You got the high wire marriage filled with high expectations and constant comparisons, criticism, critique, Feels like at any moment, the thing is going to implode. If you, have, if you hear a lot of, how could you? Or, why can't you be more like, what? Or, you know what, don't, just listen, don't worry. I'm getting, I'm getting used to the disappointment. If that's your experience, your marriage might be stuck. You got the fight club marriage, where there's just nothing but arguing and bickering and trash talking. 
See, there are all sorts of ways that you get to get stuck in your marriage. There's a meaningless marriage, nothing other than work and the kids to live for. There's the money marriage, which is just always about money, talking about money, arguing about money. You've got the insecure marriage. We can just go on and on and on talking about it. But listen, if any of these types of marriages or a combination of these marriages, which is more likely to happen over the course of many, many years, if any of them describe your experience, your marriage may be stuck. Now, here's a pro tip. If your spouse right now is furiously taking notes, <laughs> all right, if they are refusing to look at you like awkwardly staring ahead and not doing like an occasional glance, or if they are in fact just staring at you <laughs> and nudging with the elbow, pro tip, you might be stuck. You just, I'm just guessing, just check it out talk about it and ask. So let's take a look at God's word and figure out how we can get unstuck in our marriages. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. I've given you a little bit of background last week on the book of Colossians. I'll give you a little more. It's a letter written by Paul to the Christians at a church in the city of Colossae, modern day Turkey. And uh, it is... Uh, there's a lot to learn from the actual kind of background and history of what little we know about Colossae. But something we see over and over again is that Paul is encouraging us throughout this letter to keep putting Christ first. As if no matter what the, the, the Christians in Colossae were facing, as long as they were able to put Christ at the center of it, then their problems would get better. That seems to be his repeated idea here. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, I know that I'm going to sound like a broken record on this. Which, which, by the way, does, do, do the, does the next generation, do you guys know the whole idiom, broken record? Like, does that even make, like, I know you know what records are because, like, the vinyls have come back, right? So you know the vinyls. But, like, a broken record is not like a vinyl cracked in half. You guys, right? Do you guys, is this like something, you, you know what a broken record is, Logan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, keep, all right, so you see there were like tracks in the vinyl and it would skip, right? And so you would like, it would repeat the thing over and over. It's not just like cracked. It's, it's a, so when I use the idiom, that's what I, anyway. So, so you got to actually like kind of hear it because it's like, you know, it, you, you got to put Christ in the center of the marriage. You got to put Christ in the center of the marriage. You got to put Christ in, like it has to, like it goes, like that's sort of what it does. And that's really what, what we hear again, again in the book of Colossians. It's like a broken record, but there's an important reason for it. Because when we do this, when we put Christ in the center of the marriage, our spouses will begin to fuel our Christ-likeness. And this is key. See, marriage is meant to challenge us to become more and more like Christ. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to help you do. In fact, all Christian relationships are actually designed to challenge us to become more and more like Christ. But marriage may very well be one of the most effective tools in God's tool chest to move us toward Christ-likeness. Look at verse 16, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So husbands, are you actually seeing in your relationship, are, are you receiving from your wife the teaching and the admonishing that you need to become more and more like Christ? Because that's what you ought to be getting out of your marriage. Wives, are you actually able to receive from your husband? Now, listen, it's not what Oprah says. It's based on wisdom. Wisdom that we know comes from the power of the Spirit in us. So are you, wives, able to receive from your husbands the teaching and the admonishing based on the wisdom of Christ so that you, in fact, will become who Jesus wants you to be? This is a key part of marriage. And it's a gift to fuel us toward Christ-likeness. Now, Paul goes on to give us two commands, one for each spouse. So this is, this is going to get fun for someone. Um, so here, here's a little background. This is in a section called the household codes. It starts in verse 18. And what we see is, is, is Paul is kind of working his way. Some call it a household code. Some call it a house table. But the idea is you work your way around the house and you tell everybody what their responsibilities are in the house. That's why it's called a household code. And there are lots of examples of this in the ancient world. All right, so this, like Paul, you know, Peter, they didn't invent this little narrative uh, kind of a thing. This is something they picked up from the ancient cultures that they were a part of. And so what you do is you go around the table and you say, all right, wives, this is your responsibility, and kids, this is your responsibility, and, and, and servants, this is your responsibility. And so that's what we are beginning here, this household code. And uh, we start in verse 18. Ready? Wives, submit. I guess we could just stop there, right? Like that's all we pretty much need right from here on out. Just wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this is a remarkable little verse for a whole lot of reasons. And honestly, I have heard way too many men over the course of my life who have, you know, abused this idea. You know, for many men, this is actually the only Bible verse they've memorized and only the first two words. It's like, wives, submit. Like, that's all. What else do we need to know about the whole of the Bible? I almost feel like before a man can ever say this or memorize these, this verse, he needs to memorize like a hundred other verses about like God and Christ-likeness and all of that stuff. And then you can maybe, like five years in, think about reading this verse. And because of the word submit, many take this to be a sort of misogynist, male-dominated, backward idea that Paul is supporting. You know, they even say, well, look, the very fact that, that, that slavery is mentioned in this same context shows that this is clearly a teaching far removed from modern life. Some have even said that Paul here is just simply putting his seal of approval on the patriarchy of the ancient world, telling Christians, don't rock the boat. I just, as I've read this more and more, I don't think the critics could be farther from the truth of what is really going on here. This idea of submit. So here's the big question. we got to start with kind of a broad question, then we'll drill down into it. The big question here is, does this idea of submission within marriage apply today, or is it only a product of Paul's culture? Since Paul taught in a patriarchal, hierarchical culture, 
his society, does it only apply there? So the idea here is if it's culturally conditioned, then it doesn't apply directly to us today. And there's no submission or authority within a Christian home. The other idea is that if it isn't culturally conditioned, then it does apply to us and we need to figure out how it applies to us. So I want to start with the first idea, that it's a product of culture, that it is somehow culturally bound. Well, if that's the case, then this teaching falls into the category of things like men not shaving their, their beards. You know, like we recognize that that was a part of a culture of another day. We could also say women covering their heads, something we don't practice anymore. It was a part of that culture, but we don't have to apply it in our culture because it was simply a cultural construct. It didn't have to do with anything related to what the scriptures really do want for us. If that's the case, then it really does fall into the category of slavery, meaning that it existed in the time of Christ and that Paul was writing at a time, and so he would address the issues with the hope, expectation, intention that one day we would finally be rid of that particular form of, so of social oppression. And if, it, if you fall into that category, and there are lots of solid biblical scholars who do, you would take that approach and say, well, it, this doesn't actually apply to us today. Very, it's, it, it is valid. It does, you, you can, in fact, apply this in many other cases. It is something that so, the kind of cultural argument has to be applied uh, very, very carefully with a great deal uh, of attention to the details. The other side of it would say, no, 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 this transcends culture, meaning it's not culturally bound. So let's assume for a moment that you hold to a hierarchical view of the text. So what does submission actually mean? Because if you, if you hold that it really means that wives are to submit, then you have to say, well, okay, what does that look like? How does that actually get practiced in a modern marriage? So first off, I just want to say, listen, husbands, you can't demand submission. That's not yours to do. If, even if you hold that this is the way it ought to be, it isn't for you. This is between your wife and her God. This isn't for you to go, go calling and claiming on being, hey, listen, man, you know what the text says. Here, read the Bible here. You know, look what I've highlighted for you. This isn't yours to claim. This is between her and her God. I'll also tell you what it doesn't mean. That it doesn't mean that a woman is a second-class citizen. Jesus and Paul make it perfectly clear that men and women are equal in God's eyes. It also doesn't indicate any sort of inferiority. Jesus is actually told, we're, we're told that Jesus has submitted himself to the Father. But we know that the Father and the Son are equally divine. So it can't point to this idea of inferiority. We also know that it doesn't mean that the husband always gets his way. In fact, it, when you see a healthy marriage, it won't look anything like the husband always getting his way. And it doesn't mean that oh, the woman is a doormat or that she can't lead in her home or manage the finances or even lead the prayers or encourage spiritual direction and formation. It doesn't mean any of those things. And it also doesn't mean that a wife has to disobey God in order to do what her husband wants because there is always a higher authority over us, the Lord. 
Now, I just want to kind of clarify because of how this text has been abused over the centuries. If you are in an abusive relationship, you can get out. If your spouse has been uh, unfaithful, you do have a right to leave. Some of you are in terribly destructive marriages. And, I'm, and what the verse doesn't say is suck it up and be a doormat. Lots of marriages have come back from all sorts of terrible things. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for, you know, the restoration and forgiveness and all that. I'm just saying you cannot take these ideas and say what it means is the woman needs to be a doormat or a punching bag. Now, I've spoken to lots of couples over the years, and uh, I've asked, how does submission, what does it actually look like in healthy Christian marriages? And there's a lot of, even this week, I was talking to a whole lot of uh, the, the ladies who are here at the church and in leadership in the church, and I'm saying, you know, what do you think about this? Which of these positions do you hold to? And, and mo many of them do hold to some form of submission within a Christian home. And I just asked them, what does it look like? How does it actually work itself out in your marriages? I was sworn that I could not use any names, though to tell you what they said. So I'm not going to do uh, any names of who said what. Uh, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll shoot some text to some of the husbands later. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. It, it, and, and for some, what it could mean is as it, it could mean something as simple and as practical, and all, many had agreed to this, is that when, in fact, you get to a place in a relationship where you have a significant decision that needs to be made, and both of you have discussed it thoroughly, and you have prayed about it, and you have brought in outside counsel, and you have brought in wise, you know, kind of biblical insights, and you've looked at God's word, and you've tried to figure it out, and you simply cannot come to an agreement after those efforts, but a deadline is looming, so a decision must be made, some of those ladies said, well, that means that my husband actually makes the final call. So it could mean in a very practical way, very pragmatic way, that that's sort of the, the, the end line of what submission looks like. But what I learned and have over many, many conversations is that this looks different in every single marriage. How it's applied and how it's experienced in fact, the healthiest marriages who, who believe this theologically have a very, very hard time describing what it actually looks like because it doesn't feel anything like the word that we're using to describe it. They don't describe feeling put out or put upon or anything like that at all. They just sort of talk through what their lives look like and it brings out this very healthy dynamic. In fact, what it often looks like is respect and honor. That's probably the closest I can come to really kind of capturing what it is. All that being said, where am I at on this? Because I've kind of painted a whole different picture for you. And I, I was raised in a very kind of traditional patriarchal view of the family, of church, of everything. Now, over the years, I have been moving more toward a uh, egalitarian perspective on these things. And I do think that over the years, I have become increasingly uncomfortable with men constantly claiming the, the women must submit, wives must submit. Which, by the way, keep in mind, we're talking about husbands and wives. This isn't like a man-woman thing. We're not talking about that at all, just for clarity's sake. 
So I have been moving sort of over on this over the years to be thinking about it more and more in terms of a cultural mandate. But I haven't been able to escape my thinking on these texts and my conversations with many, many couples to, to think that there really are still some unique responsibilities that men and women have in marriage. And so I've been swinging this way a little bit, but I have not yet been able to identify all of this language as confined to a cultural norm. See, I think there still might be a unique leadership role that God has for husbands in the family. Maybe, you know, it's about protection or spiritual responsibility or something like this. You know, maybe it's because most cultures, women primarily take care of the kids. That's kind of a primary responsibility. And maybe, you know, this is a setup such that, that God created it so that somebody is looking out for the marriage or looking out for the wife in some very real and concrete way. I just don't think the idea itself ought to carry so much weight in the conversation of marital roles. But I do think we can learn something important from it. So here it is. Wives, practice putting your husband and his needs first. Give respect, show honor, trust him more, and see if God will use it to get your marriage unstuck. Now, husbands, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here's where things get really interesting. I told you that in the ancient world, there were these codes that looked very similar to these found in the Bible. But that's only partly true. Every parallel, there's no exact parallels to what we see here in the scriptures in the ancient world. In fact, where they differ from the ancient codes is incredibly important for us. You see, in the ancient codes, the man isn't told to do anything because these were severely patriarchal societies. So the husband isn't told what to do. The husband tells the wife to obey. The husband tells the kids to obey. The husband tells the servant to obey. And the servants, they're told how they're supposed to obey. That's how the ancient house codes came about. That's how they were written, which is completely different from what we get here. Here, only one person gets three commands the husband. So this would have been a category shifting experience for people reading it in the ancient world who were familiar with the other codes from Aristotle or others. They would have been like, what? This, is, this, isn't, this isn't the code we're used to. No, not at all. This code addresses the husband three times because I think the entirety of it is designed to soften and to blunt and to transform the power, by the power of the gospel, the role of the husbands in their homes. So, here you go, husbands. Ready? Practice putting your wife and her needs first. Give respect. Show honor. Cherish her more. And see if God will use it to get your marriage un stuck. See, elsewhere, husbands and wives are told to mutually submit to each other. That's the better idea here. For men, that's part of the command to love. It's only a part of it, but it is a part of it. 
to mutually submit. We are told as husbands to live as servants of our family. We're told to love our wives like Christ loved us, remembering that he actually gave his life for us. See, Christ, he was willing to wash our feet and willing to take a bullet for us. Husbands, that's what we are being called to do. And it is time for men to man up and lead their homes by example. And this would give us the kind of Christ-centered marriage that the scriptures paint a picture of for us. See, if you put your spouse at the center of your marriage, they will undoubtedly disappoint you. They will frustrate you. They will irritate you because we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. But if Christ is your central happiness, then you're not going to demand your satisfaction or your security or your pleasure from your spouse. See, like we, we forget this. You know, our good intentions in this aren't going to be enough. You know, our, our emotional stamina to, you know, our willpower to, to save our marriages and to work through things, it simply isn't going to be enough. You must put Jesus at the center of your marriage. If you want to head in the direction that is best for you and for your spouse and for your marriage, you need him at the center. And here's the kicker. Your spouse doesn't need to do this first. You can't say, hey, listen, you know what? I'll, this is great. As soon as she does it, I'm going to do the same thing. It doesn't work like that. In fact, not only does she not have to do it first, not only does he not have to do it first, they don't have to do it at all. And we still have to. We're still called to. And yes, even if one is doing this, it can help get a marriage unstuck. You see, this is between you and your God. It isn't between you and your spouse. See, marriage is supposed to be this powerful, life-giving relationship. It's meant to be this sort of incredibly beautiful thing that challenges us to grow and mature and help us to, to learn how to live with another person getting priority over us to beat back our self-centeredness. And all of the, 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 the beauty that goes into marriage, the intimacy and the emotional and the sexual vulnerability, it has this incredibly strange power to, to heal our souls and to lift us up and to make us more and more like Christ. But we've got to commit ourselves to working on our marriages according to the principles that Jesus lays down for us with the hope and the trust that when we do this, they will become increasingly unstuck. This is part one, all right? I've broken up this message into two parts. Part two of Stuck in Your Marriage is going to be happening next week. I've got a very important concept that I want to introduce to you, uh, and I'm also going to be looking at some very practical ways to implement these ideas. But let me just pray for us now. I'm going to ask the band to come up and get ready to bring us into the, to the Lord's table. And uh, as they do, I just want to say a prayer for the marriages here. Father, I'm just asking here that you would do uh, for us in this, these moments, Lord. There are couples here who are identifying and they're saying, man, that, that sounds a lot like what we've been dealing with and we've struggled with over the years. And there are couples here saying, you know, I don't want to have just an okay marriage anymore. I want to have a great marriage. I want to be challenged. I want to grow. I want to experience more and more of what God has for me. 
what he has for us. I want to have a Christ-centered marriage. And Lord, I'm just praying that you would give us the humility and the courage to do what we need to do, to have the conversations we need to have, to make the life changes. And most importantly, Father, to simply trust in you, to put Christ at the center, no matter the cost, no matter the initial discomfort, trusting that he wishes to renew and restore. Lord, we know that our marriages, they're going to be stuck when they have nowhere to go. And we know that you give us somewhere to go. We ask, Lord, that you would do it more and more for each person here. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.